0: This is episode two of The Threads Podcast. The podcast that stitches together the threads of art, history, science, culture, and philosophy. I'm Gary, and I'm picking up the story from episode one today, where we talked about the directions, up and down, and their meaning in different religious and philosophical backgrounds. Today's episode is a continuation of that story, but with a different focus. Today we're taking a look at Earth's place in the universe. is closely linked to what we find above us, so it follows on quite naturally, and in fact we're going to pick up more or less where we left off, during the period of ancient Rome. In the previous episode we talked about the Roman poet, Ovid. Well... Today's story starts in Rome and continues. Now, the interest in philosophy in Roman culture of that time is not a pure invention, but it's part of the claiming by Romans, especially highborn and intellectual Romans, of Greek culture, which had now become a region that they had conquered. The Greek culture of the previous 500 years had done a lot to inform what Europeans thought about themselves. It became a foundational corpus of knowledge and ideas upon which philosophers and mathematicians wanted to develop. So, Aristotle had died perhaps 300 years previous, more or less, And it's very easy to talk about him as some sort of unquestioned genius. But this would be to miss out one of the most important areas of ancient Greek philosophy. And that's come to be called Epicureanism. It's named after a philosopher called Epicurus. And one of the core tenets of his philosophy was an idea of atomism. That is to say, that all things can be broken down into small, indivisible parts. We don't have much access nowadays to the works of Epicurus himself, or his immediate disciples, but one of the best records we have is a book called On the Nature of Things, by another Roman philosopher who was a follower of Epicurus. His name is Titus Lucretius Carus, although he's normally just called Lucretius and he lived probably in the first half of the 1st century BC so we're thinking sometime between 155 BC not a lot is known about lucretius's life but his book on the nature of things has come to be thought of as one of the one of the seminal expositions of the epicurean world and while it's most famous for atomism, it does say a lot about the size and structure of the universe itself. In it, Lucretius refers to space itself as the all. And there's a little section I'd like to read to you in which he attempts to, t- ex- he t- he attempts to give us an argument about why the universe has to be infinite in size. That's a revolutionary idea. In many of these philosophies we've talked about, heaven's either very far away, like for the Babylonians, or it has the stars physically embedded in it, like it's a sort of surface. And of course, we've talked about the separation of earth and sky. Which, while just a vague idea, does suggest to us that the sky must exist in a particular place. In Ovid's version, the stars are actually going beyond the sky. They're going above the earth but they still seem to be attaching themselves somewhere. They're being given shapes in the form of animals and things, the constellations. So Lucretius' work is in the century before Ovid, and he would have died before Ovid was born, but it's almost certain that Lucretius is one of the writers Ovid would have read. So Lucretius says to us this, Thus then the all that is is limited, in no one region of its onward paths. For then it must have forever its beyond, and a beyond it is seen can never be, for aught unless still further on there be a somewhat somewhere that may bound the same, so that the thing be still seen on to where the nature of sensation of that thing can follow it no longer. Now, The poetic language of Lucretius is something that feels a little bit alien to modern scientists trying to make a point about the structure or the nature of the universe. It'd be a bit unusual to use a poetic form. But in that time, it was completely normal. In this little section, Lucretius is just setting out his idea that the universe can't be limited in any direction because it doesn't make sense to think of it that way. He goes on to explain what he means. He says, Now, because confess we must there's naught beside the sum, there's no beyond, and so it lacks all end. It matters nothing where thou post thyself in whatsoever regions of the same. Even any place a man has set him down still leaves about him the unbounded all outward in all directions. Now, I think this section sounds incredibly uncontroversial, but it's actually quite a deep point, and it rings true in an interesting way in modern astronomy, well, cosmology in particular. Lucretius is trying to say to us, look, wherever you put yourself in the universe, if there's nothing around you, you should be able to travel that way. And if there is something in the way, then there's an object in that direction. And so the universe extends that way too. He's essentially saying the universe can't have an edge. And he's saying that because if there was an edge, what would it be? I don't think he's really proved it because he hasn't really explained to us, or he hasn't proved that there couldn't possibly be some sort of boundary to the universe. But that's not really something a lot of people believed. So he's not trying to convince us of that anyway. He's really saying that no matter how far we go, we could go a little bit further. But he goes on to give us an example, and I'll read you that as well, because it's quite a nice example. He says, Or supposing a moment that all of space finite to be, if some one, farthest traveller, runs forth unto the extreme coasts and throws ahead a flying spear, is it then thy wish to think it goes, hurled off a main to where it was sent and shoots afar? Or that some object there can thwart and stop it, for the one or other thou must admit and take, either of which shuts off escape for thee and does compel that thou concede the all spreads everywhere, owning no confines. Since whether there be aught that may block and check it so it comes not where it was sent, nor lodges in its goal, or whether borne along in either view, thou started not from any end, so, I quite like his little example. He says, "Go to the right to the edge of the universe, throw a spear ahead of you well, what was what space was it in then if you threw that spear? it either hit something or it didn't, and if it hit nothing, then what's to say you couldn't have gone there too It's a nice, simple argument, but I think it's quite interesting because one of the problems we have in interpreting what's going on in modern cosmology is that we don't really know whether the universe has an edge or not and if it does have one we don't know what form it would take. The most common view among astronomers in the modern day is that because space is expanding at a rate that is actually faster than the speed of light when you take into account the whole universe although it can't be faster than the speed of light in any given reference frame. That means that it's not meaningful to talk about the existence of there being an edge. Whatever whatever is the outermost confines of the universe, it's already expanding away faster than you could possibly catch it. Now, in the physics of relativity, this is not just a pedantic point about, well, there's an edge, but you can't reach it. In the physics of relativity, to say something can't be reached is exactly the same as to say it doesn't exist. And so there's no meaningful definition of an edge of the universe in that conception. But there have been other thoughts given. And one of them is that the universe could be what's called a four-sphere. We tend to think of our universe as having three dimensions. You can go north, you can go east, or you can go up. And I could define every single point in the universe using three coordinates, one north, one up, one east. But there's a problem with that. North and east aren't actually straight lines, are they? They curve and they go around the surface of the Earth. Well, actually, if I try to define my coordinates here on Earth and I say, where is the edge of the Earth? Now I start to ask a really weird question. Where is the edge? If I go north, I'll eventually get to the North Pole. But I can keep walking. I'll just start going south instead. Even if I get to the northernmost point, I can still keep going in any direction. They're just not called north anymore. That's because the surface of the Earth is a two-dimensional shape. I can define any point on its surface with only two dimensions, north or east. Well, the four-sphere model is a bit like that, except it's saying the same thing in three dimensions. So in that kind of model, you might say that we would reach... we we could reach what we think is an edge, but we would just keep going and coming back, and we would end up coming back round to where we came from. That requires there to be some sort of imaginary fourth dimension in which the universe is curved, but the point is that there is still no edge. Of course, coming back to our creation myths and the like, we've already gone way beyond the location of the stars when we start talking about the edge of the universe. This is something that none of these ancient cosmologies ever considered. This certainly, Lucretius is considering whether or not there is an edge to the universe, but I think he couldn't possibly have imagined just how big it turned out to be. And indeed, neither can we, because what we can see is certainly not the extent of the whole universe. We don't even know if it's a majority of it or a tiny fraction. There's just no way of telling. Now, in that little diversion towards physics, I had to assume that the Earth is just at some place somewhere in the universe. But through nearly all of our ancient cosmologies, the Earth has been right at the centre. So that must have changed at some point. If we look at poetry, we can see when that happened. At least we can see signs of it. And to tell that story we have to start with a second century book. A second century AD book by another Roman, but this one more famous for his astronomy and his and his astrology. His name was Claudius Ptolemy, and he wrote a book that has come to be called Almagest. Now, Almagest is actually... Um, a transliteration of an Arabic name for the book because the book was only saved after the fall of Rome by Arabic scholars who wrote about it, who used it and did a lot of work on it. And that's how it got eventually translated back into Latin for Western Europe in the Middle Ages. The Almagest is a really important book in the history of the direction up because the Almagest is his attempt to use mathematical models to predict the, the, the motions of the things that are up above us, up in space, up in the sky. These stars that have previously just been embedded in a um, some sort of fabric in a great distance, well, he tries to actually explain why they don't all behave in the same way. After all, the planets don't move in the same way that the stars do, and neither does the sun. Ptolemy's work is legendary in the history of science, even though, as I just told you, he was an astrologer. Modern scientists tend to scoff at talk of astrology, and that's fair enough. Modern astrology has become something that's really not recognizable from the sort of thing that Ptolemy was doing with mathematical processes and calculations. But just as I've just been describing, both religion and secular poetry have been helping to drive forward the philosophy of the the shape of the universe and helping to bring us closer towards what we now call scientific ideas. These philosophies have been developing the whole time. And just like religion gave way to a whole lot of creation myths which drove our ability to then test and model and come up with solutions. So also astrology served a comparable purpose. It may have started out as a type of mysticism but because mathematics was so fundamental to the calculations required and an understanding of geometry was so important that the people who were actually performing the work of astrology were often also those driving new solutions for models of the solar system. And therefore, over time, the work done by astrologers laid a large amount of groundwork that was required for modern astrophysics to grow out of. It wouldn't have been possible without those geometers, without those mathematicians, and without not just the theoretical ideas, but also the extremely precise observations of a large number of experimental philosophers. within the roman empire within the post roman western europe especially and to a lesser extent within the the abbasid caliphate of the middle east astrology was considered to be an essential process for making decisions about politics astrologers were not just writing horoscopes to say whether you're going to have a good week this week in a newspaper. Astrologers were being asked questions like, should I invade this week or next week? Do the stars favor me having a male child? Should I marry my daughter to this other king? So important political decisions required a consultation with the stars. And because of that, the kings who felt that they would have the most advantage would be ones who had the most accurate calculations of what the stars would be doing in the future. If we knew that Saturn was going to favor us in a battle, we would want to make sure that Saturn was over us when we fought that battle. And so, these supernatural beliefs about the way the stars influenced the world led to more and more skilled mathematicians developing accurate models of how the stars move, Previously, to Ptolemy, it had been very difficult to come up with a a set of formulas for calculating the positions of two of the most important stars, which were Mars and Venus. I know they're not stars in the modern definition, but bear with me, I'll get to that. And that's because they don't simply travel across the sky in predictable circular paths like distant stars do. One of the biggest successes of Ptolemy's work was that he was able to come up with formulas that would accurately predict the positions of these planets quite a long way into the future. In fact, his tables were still being used by a lot of people without question well over a millennium after his death. And while his calculations were not completely accurate... They were surprisingly good. He didn't have a calculator, of course. So he did a pretty good job. Now, in the Almagest, Ptolemy starts by setting out a few principles. First of all, he's not able to explain why any of these stars and planets are moving around us in circles. All of our ancient myths have said that the stuff above us moves around us in circles... You know it does. If you've ever looked up, you know that that's what happens. But because we can't explain that, Ptolemy has a simple approach. He defines the first cause of the first motion of the universe as something which he calls theology. And I think he's doing a little bit of a hand wave here. He's telling us he can't explain it. And he's kind of saying, so maybe the gods did it. Maybe God did it. He then says it's completely separated from perceptible reality. So, to him, this concept of theology that sets the stars, the sun, and the moon in motion is also something which we cannot detect or experience. And by saying that, he frees himself up to not have to give explanations. He simply has to use maths to try and make accurate predictions of what's going to happen. Now, as I said to you, the sphere shape of the Earth has been well established for a long time and therefore people have figured out that the distant stars must be spherical as well. Now, that's not the model that I would tell you these days if I was teaching this in school. But the fact that the stars move in circles is absolutely something that we experience. So it's not wrong in any practically meaningful sense as far as a human here on the earth is concerned. So Ptolemy starts with that and he says, okay, well, the distant stars are moving around the earth and they're in in a sphere. They all seem to move at the same speed. That's why the constellations maintain their shapes. All the stars are staying the same distance away from one another, so whether you believe they're embedded into some sort of fabric, or if they're just all moving at the same speed, doesn't really matter. They're all part of the same sphere moving in a circle. But because gravity always seems to pull downwards towards the center of the Earth, it's necessary for Ptolemy to discuss whether the center of the Earth is also the center of the universe. Well, he specifically has to point this out. He reasons like this. He says, well, what if the Earth was displaced from the center of the universes? He makes a very simple observation. He says, well, if the sun is orbiting the center of the universe, then there wouldn't be equinoxes. The sun wouldn't necessarily have a day when it spends just as much time above as it does below the Earth. If we were off to one side, we might even have times when the sun just doesn't set at all. Of course, Ptolemy didn't live on the poles, so he didn't know that this actually can happen. It's not really what he was interested in, and I suspect with his skill, he could have probably actually calculated that. But there were no lands known about near the poles, so it wasn't important for him to do that. And then he also says the celestial sphere of the stars wouldn't be evenly divided, which is what it appears to be. The horizon... Uh, and there's a line in the sky that the sun follows, which we call the ecliptic. The sun follows that line, the moon oscillates above and below that line, and the distribution of the stars is pretty even on both sides. Ptolemy's observations and his logic are completely sound here, and so to deduce that the Earth is the centre of the universe, given what knowledge was available to him, is completely reasonable. He then also goes on to tell us that the Earth mustn't have any motion, So the earth is stationary and everything else is moving. So to him, if you go down, you'll get to the center of the universe. And then you'll have half of the earth above you and half below you. That's pretty similar to how we think of the center of the earth now as a sphere. Even though we don't necessarily think of it as the center of the whole universe. But it was a reasonable observation given how much he knew. The problem was this, it wasn't easy to come up with a formula that explains the behavior of Mars and Venus. These two planets sometimes are moving forward in the sky in the same direction as the Sun and the Moon. But just now and again, they exhibit something called retrograde motion. This is where they appear to move backwards where they came from. So Ptolemy couldn't explain why that happens without with any ease and he had to invent an entirely new mathematical structure he invented the concept of orbits so the sun was orbiting the center of the earth and the moon was orbiting the center of the earth he knew that the moon was closer to the earth than the sun because of eclipses and he had to start positioning the planets and he tried a few different examples but the one that the one that's been handed down to us is a model in which mars and venus have to follow circular orbits, but they're then deviated by these little processes, they're called epicycles. And epicycles are circles, so they're little orbits that Mars and Venus are swimming on, and these orbits are superimposed on top of their original orbits. So if you imagine a large circle and then you put a small ring which is centred on a point on that circle, Mars and Venus are both orbiting on that small ring. So they're both orbiting on a small circle which is in itself orbiting the Earth. That enables those planets to sometimes move back and forth. But it's a bit messy because there's no reason why these epicycles should exist. The problem is, they're really good for making predictions. They're a good model. So people kind of accept them, even though no one really likes them. And when Christianity and Islam start to become popular a few hundred years later, these epicycles start to cause people a lot more discomfort. Both Arabic scholars in the Abbasid Caliphate and later Christian scholars are not comfortable with this because their belief about the universe is that it's the perfect creation of a perfect creator. And these epicycles just don't really look right. They look messy. They don't look like they ought to be there. The Earth being at the center of the universe is completely reasonable for these religious backgrounds. Of course, the Earth would be at the center of the universe. The creation myths of Genesis and the Quran both place Earth very clearly as the center or the most important part of the universe, at least. So that's not a problem, but the epicycles are. No one's really very successful for a long time, though, at coming up with anything better as far as predicting what's going to happen is concerned. So we're going to have to fast forward a little bit to tell this story, and we're going to have to go all the way to 1543 after this short break. 1543 is a significant year in the history of knowledge because it's the year in which a book called De Revolutionibus Orbum Celestium was published, or in English, On the Motions of the Heavenly Spheres. It was written by um, a Catholic preacher called Nicolaus Copernicus, He's been variously described as Polish or occasionally as German-speaking. But Copernicus's book has a really impactful statement right near the beginning, right in the introduction. He titles his introduction To the Reader Concerning the Hypotheses of This Work. He addresses you directly and he says it plain as day. We've been believing... Ptolemy, and we've been using Ptolemy for centuries now. It's very well established, but Copernicus is a competent mathematician. He's perfectly capable of doing calculations and making observations of the stars. And he's been studying Ptolemy himself. But something happens that Copernicus probably didn't expect. His publisher, a theologian named Andreas Osiander, adds a preface to the book, probably without even telling Copernicus he was going to do this. And in this preface, he makes a few interesting comments, and these are the ones I'm actually going to quote for you, because what Ossiander says, to me is suggestive of two things. One, a degree of defensiveness ...about the way that Copernicus's theory may have been... ...he may have expected that the theory would be received. And secondly... ...it's either a fear or a softening... ...but for either reason... ...he makes this argument that... ...it's not necessary... ...for the theory of Copernicus to even be factually true... ...for these models to be of interest. And Copernicus himself... ...probably did believe that it was true. So actually... It's a bit of a divergence, probably, from what Copernicus thought. And I have to say probably. Because Ossiander, as the publisher of the book, got the final say on what Copernicus himself said. And he has this to say... It is the job of the astronomer to use painstaking and skilled observation in gathering together the history of the celestial movements, and then, since he cannot by line of reasoning, reach the true causes of these movements, to think up or construct whatever causes or hypotheses he pleases, such that by the assumption of these causes, those same movements can be calculated from the principles of geometry for the past and for the future too. So... He's not much further than Ptolemy in terms of solving the problem of why the stars and the planets move. He's quite comfortable with saying that we can't calculate it. But what I like is that he then goes on to say, This artist is markedly outstanding in both of these respects, for it is not necessary that these hypotheses should be true or even probably, but it is enough if they provide a calculus which fits the observations unless by some chance there is anyone so ignorant of geometry and optics as to hold the epicycle of Venus as probable, and to believe this to be a cause why Venus alternately precedes and follows the Sun at an angular distance of up to 40 degrees or more. For who does not see that it necessarily follows from this assumption that the diameter of the planet in its perigee should appear more than four times greater and the body of the planet more than 16 times greater than in its apogee? Nevertheless, the experience of all the ages is opposed to that. Copernicus is annoyed. And he's annoyed that he's been reading works by countless philosophers and mathematicians who rely on Ptolemy and worship Ptolemy. And he's saying, look, mate, it's obvious that Venus couldn't possibly have this epicycle because if it did, it would get so much closer to us when it's near us, that we'd see it get bigger in the sky and we don't, it always looks about the same size. Now, it clearly isn't obvious because we just had centuries of people not believing it. But to him, it feels obvious. And I think that's part of what motivates him to write this book. In this book, Copernicus sets out the first mathematically sound model and sound is a word I'm using with some reservation here, of the solar system in which the sun is at the center. He's not the first person to ever suggest the sun might be at the center of the universe. There is a reference made in a writing by Archimedes called the Sand Reckoner, in which he describes a heliocentric model that was created by the Greek philosopher Aristarchus of Samos. Well, actually, this is the third century BC, and what we're seeing is a fairly dry description of a model by Archimedes, in which he just says how it is to King Galon, who he's speaking to in this passage. And he says... Aristarchus has brought out a book consisting of certain hypotheses, wherein it appears, as a consequence of the assumptions made, that the universe is many times greater than the universe previously mentioned. His hypotheses are that the fixed stars and the Sun remain unmoved, that the Earth revolves about the Sun on the circumference of a circle, the Sun lying in the middle of the orbit, and that the sphere of the fixed stars, situated about the same center as the the Sun, ...is so great that the circle in which he supposes the Earth to revolve... bears such a proportion to the distance of the fixed stars... ...as the centre of the sphere bears to its surface. To put that in simpler language... ...he's saying that the reason why the stars don't appear to move relative to each other... ...i.e. have what we call a parallax in science... ...is because they are extremely far away from the centre of the universe... He does think they're all lying on a sphere so that they're all the same distance because it is a fact that there is no observable parallax throughout the year. If you look at the sky in midsummer and then look again in midwinter, you can't see with the naked eye stars moving closer and further away from each other. Think of when you're on a train and you see things near to you like trees moving by much faster than things in the distance like mountains. That's the parallax effect seen in a short time scale, but we'd expect to see that with different objects if they're not the same distance away. Well, the reality is that those distances are so great, even the smallest ones, that we can't see this parallax with our eyes. It's very, very great compared to the distance the Earth moves in going round the sun. That's how we understand it today. But it's no surprise that Archimedes was possibly a little sceptical about that idea. But nonetheless, the way he reports it is not one of horror, It's not one of disgust. It's certainly nothing like, as we're going to get to later, the reaction of the Catholic Church to the proposals of Galileo or Giordano Bruno. Now, Copernicus writes this as an abstract work of sort of mathematical philosophy. And although it's clear that he believes it, he hasn't made any observations to prove that it's true. In the book, he calculates, he predicts the positions of a number of objects for a significant amount of time. And in his model, which we call this a heliocentric model, by the way, he's done one thing which is absolutely revolutionary. He's completely changed what we think down means. Now down will simply lead us to the center of the Earth. It won't get us anywhere else more interesting. It's no longer the center of the universe. That's a fundamental shift in what Earth is and where Earth's place in the universe is. Now, Copernicus doesn't get into a lot of trouble for this because, as I said, it's quite a theoretical work. He doesn't manage to prove whether it's true or not. And he makes a little bit of a mistake. He's unable to completely remove the epicycles. So in his sun-centered model of the solar system, there are still some epicycles. And I blame the fact that he's a Christian. Let me explain. For a medieval Christian, the universe just has to be perfect. God created it, so how could it not be perfect? That's the only way to explain it. And if you're a mathematician, the most perfect shape that you can possibly believe in is a circle or a sphere. A circle and a sphere has no hard edges, it has no roughness, it's completely symmetrical in every single direction. It seems almost intuitive that if God was going to put the planets in orbits, that those orbits would be circular. So that's what Copernicus does. He puts all the planets into circular orbits and unfortunately the planets don't actually orbit in perfect circles which is something we'll cover when we get a bit further on and so because of that slight error copernicus has to introduce small epicycles into his system so now the sun is in the middle now the planets are orbiting the sun and they're all orbiting at different distances But some of them have these little epicyclic motions where they are effectively sitting on a ring and orbiting some abstract point on that ring. There's no object located at that point at the center of the epicycle, so there's still no explanation for why the motions happen. But it is a significant change. This being a podcast that is about art and science, I feel it's really important to give credit to Copernicus by talking for a little while about some of the depictions that he might have seen in art that fed his imagination. Illustrations have a powerful effect on your mind when you see them to give you a really strong sense about where things are placed And these illustrations are inevitably suffused with the culture that they're written in. I don't know exactly what Copernicus had already seen, what books he had read, and what diagrams he will have seen attempting to depict the world. There are some in Ptolemy's Almagest itself, although most of them are quite geometrical in nature. Illustrative, yes, but not particularly attempts to be artistic. But that's not a consistent fact about illustrations in scientific texts, especially in the scholastic period of early medieval Western history. There's an illustration in a book by Gautier de Metz called Limage du Monde, French for the image of the world. And in that book, there is an illustration of the circles of the universe. It was published in probably 1464. In it, the universe is depicted as a series of concentric rings, therefore the universe is circular, but you can see yourself in the circle that represents the earth. You can imagine yourself pointing upwards, heaven is the outermost circle, and you can imagine yourself pointing downwards, and sure enough the innermost circle is hell. It's an interesting depiction. There's a link to it in the show notes. You should have a look. It's interesting, because in drawing hell, the artist has had to recognize that gravity pulls people towards the earth, but has struggled with the notion of a concentric world in which there's a central area. Take a look at it. The reality of a world that's hollow would be quite difficult to square with our modern understanding of gravity. I don't know if the artist felt this friction or not, but for me it's quite visible. It seems like down on the page is representing the direction gravity pulls in, even though for all the other layers they behave differently. Anyway, these concentric circles are unlabeled, but probably they represent the orbits of various planets. You can see the stars depicted in one of the outermost ones and heaven is further out even than those. It would give anyone looking at the diagram reason enough to understand the fact that they couldn't see God. And it would also, I think, lend a certain amount of credibility to the feeling we get as humans when we look up at the Milky Way at night and we feel a connection to the universe Possibly we feel some sense that there's something grand up there, something huge about the night sky. For a Christian, it's very natural to connect that to God. Now, this t- depiction is really just an illustration in a book describing the structure of the universe but there's far more popular and far more significant culturally art that follows this same model. Good is up and bad is down. There's quite a well-known diptych, that means to say a two-part painting connected, usually by a hinge, by a Dutch painter called Jan van Eyck. It's called The Last Judgment, painted in a very similar time around 1440. Again, see the show notes. Jan van Eyck's Last Judgment is one of the early depictions of... Well, it's not particularly early, I suppose. But it's a depiction of hell, very clearly, and heaven, with earth in the middle. Because it's the Last Judgment, you can see supplicants praying and begging to be received by the Lord, who's at the top. And you can see hell at the bottom of the image. It's very vertical. It's a narrow and tall image and it gives you this strong sense of the up-down direction and the power of it. What's interesting is that the chaos of the hell part of the image makes it very difficult to tell whether gravity is actually in force or not. There's no particular sense that the characters are all falling, they seem to be amassed on top of each other. It certainly creates a feeling of unease, which is definitely what Van Eyck was hoping to do. And it's a pattern that gets repeated a lot in various different pieces of art in various different periods. After all, this is only a hundred years after one of the uh, depictions that has become very famous now, which was by an even more famous artist, Giotto. What's so special about this? Uh, This painting that I'm talking about now, which is actually a fresco in a church in Padua in Italy. And yet again, we see saints arrayed at the top of the image, closest to the sky. Now, of course, this is actually a vertical surface. It's a wall. So the sky part of the image is much higher up. But in this one, the, the style of the image much more seems to suggest that hell, rather than being underground, Is perhaps in a crack of some sort or a fissure. This one's much less vertical. The earth is on the left and hell is on the right. Heaven very clearly above and saints seated on chairs are looking down towards the earth. We can see a a fat gluttonous figure who's probably meant to be Satan eating people. Again, it's grim, it's grotesque and there's a lot of motion, a lot of life in it which is something that you see a lot in Giotto. And there seems to be pictures that look a bit like people being thrown over the edge into the hell part of the image. So perhaps again we have a sense, much like in Dante, that there's a fissure, there's a crack. Hell is down below the surface of the Earth, but not necessarily that it's at the center of the Earth. Perhaps hell is a specific place for Giotto, rather than the entire core of the Earth. Perhaps he doesn't believe the earth is mostly hollow, like some of these illustrators appear to, although it's not clear. I'm telling you this because this is the cultural context in which Copernicus was working. It's very difficult to reject, to change, to tear apart philosophical models, frameworks, that your whole community believes in, that you grew up surrounded by, It's not as simple as to just wake up one day and realize it's all different. Realize that you've seen something nobody else had seen. These things happen in tiny steps. And each one of these people that we consider now to be a great discoverer made a really a small increment in a very huge story. Now, it may have been momentous at the time, but there's no one person responsible for a huge amount of change here. And the thing I'm really hoping to show you more than anything here is that something as simple as the directions of up and down is so fundamentally tied both to our religious experiences and our senses of moral good and value in the universe that to create the sense of the universe that is understood by physicists today and that is taught in schools all over the world is a huge task. It's a huge task, and it's not something that can be done by just a handful of individuals. It's colossal. It would be so convenient for someone like me, trying to tell this story, to tell it through the actions of a few significant individuals. People whose personalities we can start to get familiar with, people whose relationships can become a part of the story. It makes it an interesting story and it brings it to life for us. But the reality of what happened to the ideas is that they passed through so many different individuals, so many different ways of being expressed through art, literature, textbooks, grammatical, textbooks, geometric guides, and conversations and letters written between people, that the only way to fully tell this story is to follow the threads of those ideas themselves. That's all we've got time for in this episode. This was part one of Earth's Place in the Universe. The next episode will pick up exactly where we left off. Thank you so much for listening. Please, if you enjoyed what you heard, subscribe, leave a review on whatever podcast player you're using, and pick up the next one when it comes out. Tell your friends if you think they'd be interested in some of this stuff. It would really help me. This is a one-man operation, and anything you can do to help spread the word, I'd incredibly appreciate. I'm also extremely welcoming of corrections if you're interested in the history of philosophy, knowledge, and art yourself. I don't intend this podcast to be an Academic piece of scholarship. And it's highly unpractical for me as a single individual to try and learn everything that needs to be learned about the history of art, literature, science, and philosophy, and in general cultural history. If you do have corrections, I'd more than welcome them, and I would issue them in future e- episodes, so please get in touch with me. I'm reachable on Instagram as the Threads Podcast with dots between the words. I'm also reachable on Twitter at Grooze9. Please see the show notes to take a look at some of the artworks that I discussed in this episode and some of the literature and the full list of references that I use. And thanks so much to Echo Juliet for providing the intro and outro music. And look forward to seeing you next time.